You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Face, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and welcome here for another week at Snarky Faith. So here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. And I'll give you some background to like why like we're we're like we're switching up formats just just for this week, and I'm gonna tell you. So uh, over this last week, we have we had you're gonna laugh here. We had Palm Sunday, which is you know a major event uh, le- leading up to Easter and in, in the life of Christianity, and like in the in this you know we're leading into Holy Week now, um, moving towards Easter. So this is kind of like this is kind of like you know the world series of Christianity when we have kind of moving towards Easter here. So, so we have that happen. So Palm Sunday, same time game of Thrones comes back on. Right. Right. So I'm watching me some games of Thrones and I just start to ponder and think, especially um, this will be spoiler free. If you've not listened already, it's your own fault. But again, I won't be the one to give you spoilers. It'll probably be someone you know in your life will be telling you too many spoilers here. So the beginning, the beginning, the beginning, the beginning of episode one, season eight of Game of Thrones, a.k.a. the last season, moving towards the finale, moving towards the end. Uh, The episode entitled Winterfell begins with a triumphant return of sorts. We have Jon Snow returning to Winterfell with an army and a queen. And there is celebration, there's apprehension, there's all of this that is going on at the same time. And I started really to think about the parallels between what happens on Palm Sunday. And as I started really just to think a little bit deeper about like the significance of Palm Sunday and really like what Palm Sunday is now, um, it led me to have like, like, it was it was an interesting thing I'd had in between too. Like I was talking with with my with my kids about the significance of Palm Sunday versus like what we do on Palm Sunday on uh, on a regular basis in, in like an institutional church. And I really began to kind of unpack as we were talking about the story of Palm Sunday with my with my with my kids and my family of the political nature of Palm Sunday. And and I think that this is one thing that doesn't usually get preached on a Sunday, like. In many ways, for those of you that have been in and around church for some period of your life, Palm Sunday is kind of a a celebration. We bring little kids in with palm branches and we say, Hosanna in the highest. Yes, it's a celebration, a celebration that's going to lead to death. Yeah. What? Huh? Yeah. Mm, Okay. Yeah. And, And so we've we've kind of like we've ended up like in many ways, for lack of a better term, whitewash the narrative of Jesus. I mean, we all know <laughs> around American Christianity, we have literally whitewashed Jesus where Jesus looks like a uh, member of the Bee Gees, 
with his hot, sexy, flowing hair and his nice, full beard and his glowing robes and his ha, ha, ha. Well, maybe not that part. Uh, that'd be more BGs. But uh, when we think about Palm Sunday and we think about like what it means, especially moving towards Easter, I, I think many times that we have, we've, we've completely sanitized this. We have, we have caged the story. We have made it into something that makes us feel comfortable and celebratory where it actually should be something that actually really challenges us and makes us look a lot harder and deeper contextually at the story of Jesus. Now, I mentioned earlier that we're trashing format today. I'm trashing format. I know. Take it up with my boss if you have a problem with it. Because there really is no boss. So if you have a problem with it, you can complain to me at questions at snarkyfaith.com. Uh, I always love, I always love hearing back from our fans here from the show. But, okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you guys a little snippet, a little picture. Don't even really know how long this thing is going to go. And if you're listening to this over terrestrial radio here in Chapel Hill in Carborough, this goes short. You're going to listen to some sweet, 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 sweet tunes that'll somehow fit the motif of the ethos of the story that we're telling here. If you're listening to this on podcast, guess what? You're going to get the good stuff without the musical fluff. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. That being said, sorry, that was, that was a long aside to kind of get to what I'm really trying to say here is that circle around, children. It's time for Sunday school. Right, right. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pull up those little chairs and make a little circle. And uh, I'm going to pull out the good book. And we're going to talk through this good book. But we're going to talk through this, really this, this story of, of Palm Sunday in, in three like movements or three measures. And, and what I want to do is, is really unpack, or if you're in theological circles, circles, we're going to exegete scripture. We're going to kind of unpack the context and really what is being said in scripture. Uh, and as I said before, this is not the typical unpacking of scripture that you hear on a typical Palm Sunday. Why is that? Well, baby, 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 once you kind of once you kind of hit the Lenten season, the Sundays before Easter and moving up to Easter, this is this is where the church hits cruise control on messaging and we just amp the production value. We're going to move it on up. We're going to ramp it up. Cuz no one really cares about what we're going to say on, on Easter Sunday, we just need to know that we're all going to win, right? Like we moved to Easter where Easter eventually is kind of the George Bush mission accomplished thing in the background and everyone cheers. Hallelujah. (laughs) But yeah, but what we, what really gets robbed from the story um, ends up being like the deep subtext and the deep context of really what was happening uh, politically around Rome, and especially politically, especially within the Jewish religious circles, as Jesus begins to move into Jerusalem. Now, we don't usually kind of sit down directly like this on the show, but hey, 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 we can say this is like a holiday special show, if that makes you feel any better. So, yeah, yeah. Essentially, we're going to walk through scripture in ways that we don't always do here on the show. Uh, This is not your mama's Bible study. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, 
Anyone want to want to hop into some political context and some political talk about Jesus? Because I think we should, because I think it's missed routinely when we tell the story of Palm Sunday. And vicariously, when you miss out on Palm Sunday, you miss out on the narrative that's happening, that's swirling around Jesus going into Jerusalem. And you know what also happens? A bit. You're going to miss out on the context of what's happening on Easter. You see where I'm getting at here? You see where I'm getting at here? See, I'm here to kind of mess mess with our uh, our sacred cows, our sacred chocolate Easter bunnies, because I think that we have been talking about Easter all wrong for many, many years. I think that we have sanitized it. I think that we've made it into a commercialized holiday, or for the church, a commercialized day where we get banging numbers, banging numbers in the seats, in the pews on a Sunday morning. Because if you don't know this, if you don't know this about working in a church and being around the Christian industrial complex, I'll tell you. Now, the two biggest holidays of the year, which, which is by no surprise, is Christmas and Easter. Those are kind of just the, those are the big days. Uh, it's kind of the dual crown instead of the triple crown of, of Christianity. Now, when you work in and around Christian ministry and churches, those are the days where you funnel the biggest amount of money because you know you're going to have what, what they call in the industry the creasters. The Christmas and Easter Christians, the ones that only show up twice a year. So if you are working for a church, your whole idea is, A, this, we're going to get great numbers so we can brag to our congregation about how many people we served. And at the same time, you're trying to make a banging show because guess what? Guess what? Guess what? You may be able to net some of them into hanging out at your church after that point. Is any of this about Jesus? Hell no, it's not. Is everything about growing your organization, business institution that we also collectively now still call church? Hell yes, it is. So yes, 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 yes. So yeah, it's it's kind of like this is like we're moving towards like the Black Friday of, of churchianity here in all of this. So yes, so it is, it's a big deal behind the scenes. And, and the, one of the reasons you're never going to hear the message get very political um, as you're moving towards a big day like this is why? Well, we don't want to rock the boat when we have our biggest audience, people, right? Right? We don't want to offend people. We don't want people to, we want people to come back. We want people to come back and we want people to tithe. We want, we want, we want, wait, this is about celebrating Jesus or really just about making sure that we are doing a really good job with branding and ensuring Cash flow. Oh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Mental note, Stuart. Edit that out later. We don't want that in here. Don't want that getting out there. Because really, if, if people really knew that in most of the church world that Easter is just a big show to be able to try to make more money in the long term, never mind. Delete, delete, delete. Okay. Mental notes. <laughs> don't even worry. You won't even hear that later in the show. <laughs> I'm going to edit it out. All right. So back to Easter. And the movement moving up towards Easter, right? Okay, you're tracking with me here. Went a little stream of consciousness, back on track. So essentially stating this, that the thesis of our hour here is we want to extricate Jesus from the 
mainstream institutionalized version of Christianity that you, most of you have heard, and we want to kind of really return it towards reading scripture through a lens where that lens should be authentic and hopefully read and heard in a manner closer to the context of actually what happened. Got it? So, so, so let's begin. Let's begin with our first measure. So I'm going to break through this. Here's how I'm going to break this down. I mentioned earlier, we're going to do this kind of in three measures or three movements. And all of this is coming from Matthew 21. So I'm going to read some scripture. We're going to unpack it and read a little more scripture. We're going to unpack it, read a little more scripture, unpack it. And then we're going to have a conclusion, right? 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 This is kind of like, yeah, we're writing like, writing a theme paper for school again. Except hopefully this will be a lot more fun. You guys good? You guys good? All right. All right. So you know where we're going. So. If you're locked and loaded, if you're ready to go, if you're if you are if you are on this journey here for this hour, make sure you buckle up and make sure you get ready. Because here we go now. Hop into some old school Sunday school scripture, people. Here we go. So we begin with Matthew 21. Matthew 21, 1. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus said, uh, Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. And the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar, as he entered, who is this, they ask. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, so beginning our first measure that we're kind of moving through here, that is Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Okay, so if you guys are just kind of tracking with me, that's where we're starting here. And, and one of the main points that I'm wanting to make here, um, as, as many of you that have been around churchianity for a long period of time, this ends up just being a, a big celebration Sunday in, in the life of the church right? You'll have kids come in, they'll give kids palm leaves because this is Palm Sunday, they'll lay things out and people are like, oh, this is adorable, look at this! And we'll all cry, Hosanna! Hosanna! Yay! So this is kind of like, within Christianity, this is kind of like the pep rally. Not the, it, this is, this is, this is like we're leading, this is the pep rally for the big game, right? So Palm Sunday, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey People are getting all excited. They're celebrating. Yay! They're laying palm branches and garments down on the road. Seems like a great time, right? Seems just like something that's super duper fun. Wow. Wow, Stuart. Why are you throwing cold water on this? Huh? Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. All of this, all of this speech, especially the, the, for the writers in the Bible here, this, this is a very, very, very inherently political story that we are reading here. 
Now, this isn't like a, a fun little sanitized, like, aw, like, like kids Christian Bible story of it, where everyone's like, yay, we love Jesus. No, 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 no. It's not that at all. And this is an inherently and a very, very deeply political story of what is actually transpiring in Rome at this time. To give you a little bit of backstory, so we have this dude, and guess what? If, if you're lost in anything that I'm saying, there's this book, the Bible, you can kind of go read the Gospels if you want to know about Jesus. Um, so yes, you have this guy, Jesus, who moves around um, in, in this land, we're talking about like Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, right? That is under Roman occupation. So Rome is the America of the time, so to speak. They are the, they are the uh, world power. And they dominate through just a ruthless overtaking of peoples. So when they occupy, they go in and they demoralize, and Rome is everything. And who leads Rome? Well, who leads Rome is Caesar, and Caesar is seen as a god. And one of the common motifs and, and things that were spoken at the time was the idea that Caesar is Lord. Some people literally believed that Caesar was Lord. Others just knew he was a very, very powerful ruler of the time. But just understand that, where we're at right here. And, and when we begin to read the Bible, you're reading this from a very Jewish context. Now, the Jews at this time had been, for many years, taken over by Rome. So they were living under the thumb of the empire. And for all of the promises that you would have seen in the Old Testament, the Jews were waiting for a savior. They were waiting and they were waiting and they were waiting. They were waiting for deliverance. And, and this was something that was very much in the minds of the Jews at this time. Now, if, if you read the traditional Bible where you end up having the Old Testament, New Testament, right? So if you just kind of look at that on like a linear path, there's about 500 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, uh, certain Bibles, especially in Catholic circles, will, will end up having like the books of Maccabees. And the books of Maccabees are more political in nature, but they are of where there was an uprising where the Jews tried to overthrow the powers of the time. And that uprising, that rebellion was squashed. It was squashed. So this idea of waiting for the Savior, waiting for someone to politically save the Jews was something that was very much in the minds of the people at the time. They, they believed that they were the chosen people of God. They believed that God was on their side. They believed that God was with them. And they were simply like waiting. Like, like when will God overthrow Rome? If we are God's people, why are we still here? Why are we living in this, in this place? Why, why are we living amongst these people that don't believe what we believe, that don't care about what we care about, that don't, that, that they don't? The predominant culture doesn't make sense to us, right? Eh, understand that. <laughs> that we're living in a time where, <laughs> where conservative Christians are just like, oh my gosh, Lord, oh no, culture. <laughs> so, right. So, um, so, so, so like the religious remnant that's holding on is that they're waiting for a savior. They're waiting for someone to militarily and politically free them. For lack of a better word or for lack of a better term here, they're waiting for God to come in and kick some ass 
and reestablish Jerusalem as a world power. We don't like these guys because we're the special ones. We need this. Okay. So just understanding overall, that's kind of, that's, that's part of just like the, the groundwork. That's just part of like the, the ground floor of what is happening, especially within Jewish folks in this time back in just the first century. Okay. So you begin to have Jesus. So Jesus begins to move around and begins to speak about this thing called the kingdom of God. He begins to, to elicit followers. He, he speaks in a way that begins to attract people that people are very interested in. He begins to perform miracles and heal people. So, and Jesus does a lot of this outside, outside the main areas of Jerusalem. But all the while, as you read through the Gospels, uh, you begin to see the fact of the matter of this. Rome is in power, but the Pharisees and Sadducees, see, those are the power brokers of the Jewish religion at the time. Pharisees and Sadducees, remember this. So they're the power brokers. And they don't like the message that Jesus is telling people. Because he's very, now, you can argue with me on this one, but I would say he's very just um, anarchistic in his nature of what he's speaking about. He speaks about power in the means of, in order to be powerful, you need to serve people. He, he speaks in a way that seems to throw conventional wisdom just upside down. Uh, he seems to gravitate towards people that, that overall Roman society and or Jewish society uh, in kind of the microcosm of Jewish society that's kind of fit over the overarching nature of Roman society. But Jesus speaks in, in, into a nature of speaking towards those that are marginalized in both of those groups. Uh, he speaks to the forgotten in those groups. He speaks to those that, that, that seem to be lost by common culture. And, and he seems to reach out to these people. He seems to, to, to be there throughout his teachings and throughout his ministry there to be able to restore human dignity to people where common culture has told them that they are garbage. And he does this time and time again. Now, other things Jesus begins to do also is he begins to break cultural norms. He begins to heal people on the Sabbath. So healing people on a day that's supposedly God's holy day where you're supposed to do nothing, Jesus heals people on that, which again is a break of a cultural norm. So by and large, Rome wasn't taking huge notice of him up until this point. But the Jewish leaders of the time were taking a lot of notice about him because he's creating a stir. He is messing with the power structures and he's actually recontextualizing what they believed at that time God's nature and God's law to be. So, I know that many people have been raised with this, with this message of this, this nice and cute, meek and mild Jesus, this, this Jesus that kind of came to be fuzzy and to love you, and he's got sweet little, like, flowback hair. He wears white garments. He likes to pet lambs. He likes to pet children. He just likes, he's a nice guy. He likes to pet things, right? No. Uh, this is very much an insurrectional move that Jesus is doing. Uh, one of the reasons, especially the lower classes in society, begin to uh, be attracted to him is because he begins to speak to them in a way that says God cares about you. Like you who are forgotten in culture, God knows you. 
and you matter. Jesus begins to, and, and many have argued this, and I would also not argue this, I would agree with this point, is that Jesus was one of the first feminists in history. Jesus begins to elevate women um, and give them jobs and give them things to do that are part of his group to elevate them to equal status within men, which again, in the Roman system, was something that was not done. So a lot of these cultural norms that, that were commonplace within Roman culture and or the smaller, like, in Jewish culture of this time, Jesus was upending these. Okay, so I tell you all of that to then lead to the scripture I just read. Okay, so as we're going through that scripture, uh, what is happening here? So Jesus begins to go into Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem being really the epicenter of, of Jewishness, Jewish life, Jewish culture. Now, they are so occupied, fully occupied by Rome at the time, so Jesus begins to ride in. Now, to, to unpack a bit of Palm Sunday, uh, usually all you will hear on Palm Sunday is will end up being what I read earlier, Matthew 21, 1 through 10. So where Jesus tells his disciples to go and get a, a, a donkey for him to ride into town on. Okay, so uh, what we begin to see happening here um, as Jesus begins to ride into town, some of some of the renown that he has had, um, some of the followers that he has had, some of all of just this, this what you'd call is like, you know, <laughs> Jesus at that time would have been a social media influencer. And so some of the influence that he's had from all of the time of, of, of moving amongst the people um, has really, it's began to get to a fever pitch here. And so he begins to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, I'm going to parallel two different visions that are happening at the same time. Okay. So, you have Jesus riding into Jerusalem, a procession of people, a procession of people rallying around him. Now, these people are very excited about him coming in. Now, why are they excited? I mentioned this earlier. It's because in many ways, they believe that he is their deliverer. Certain translations, as I said earlier, would say, praise God for the son of David. Blessed, uh, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. So they begin to say things like, Hosanna. Uh, and so they're praising him. They're saying this, this dude, this dude, this dude. But one thing that oftentimes gets missed in, in the translation of scripture is this. And I bring you this thing, uh, this, 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 this kind of, commentary um, from this. I, I just, I love this. I have this book and I, I, I ended up getting this book when I was back in seminary and, and I use it a lot. And this is the, the, the Jewish New Testament commentary. And really what it is, it's, it's, it's rereading the New Testament through, through more Jewish eyes, um, through the eyes of the people that wrote the New Testament, through the eyes of the Jews that were around that time period, as opposed to simply just scholars taking at it from their standpoint. So, um, I'd mentioned earlier that they were, yes, the people are praising God, but, but I love the way that they recontextualize this. Um, and, and they say this, that they're shouting, please deliver us, save us. Like literally they are saying in the Hebrew, save us, son of God. And they're, they're yelling this, they are screaming at this, at this perceived Messiah. They are calling out because they are a people that have been beaten down and demoralized 
and they're living in the shadow of Rome, and they want to be saved. I know oftentimes that we're going to see, especially in white American Christian evangelical churches, it's this whole like praising of God. No, no. And, and this one thing is something I feel like we miss, miss very much. The people are crying out, save us, save us. And that in and of itself is an incredibly, an incredibly political statement. To have the people in Jerusalem that are turning out, that are laying things on the road, in front of this man riding on a horse or riding on a donkey. You see, what generally this would mean, a conqueror rides into a city on a war horse where people cover the ground with things like palm leaves and celebrate his triumphant entry. But what we see Jesus call out to do is he's riding in on a donkey. This is not a war horse. This is a donkey. This is, this, is, this is a lowly animal. This is like a beast of burden that we see here. But they are crying out to him, save us, save us. And this isn't the type of save us that you would probably hear within evangelical circles. No, no, this isn't it. They're not saying, Jesus, save us for our sins because we have been separated from God. Therefore, we need you to die for us so that we can live again forever in heaven. No, 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 no. No. They're literally saying, we are oppressed and we want God to deliver us. And we think that you're going to be the one that's going to come in and is going to kick ass and take names. Jesus comes in in the humblest of ways, but in a humble way of, of really just upending the expectations of people. He comes in riding in as a humble servant, whereas the people see this as a triumphant entry, a triumphant entry that is going to save their asses. Not going to hear that on a Sunday morning. Not going to hear that. Now, now this, for many people, is the beginning of a revolution. The people are excited. We've heard about this guy. He performs miracles. He speaks about God in, in a way that we've never heard about it. He, he teaches scripture that we've heard before, but he tells it to us in a way that actually makes us feel like, like that we're not garbage. Like, what? What is this? This guy, this guy, this guy has something. He's got political mojo. And that's not really what Jesus is going after, but that's what the people try to turn it into. So let's lay the scene here to where we have Jesus coming in. A lot of the city is excited and they are thinking that he is here to deliver them. That's our act one. So as we end this act one here, my question for you is this. So for those that are the power broker, the power brokers of the time, how are they going to receive such a thing? Someone from the outsides, from the outskirts, from, from the smaller villages and cities that we've kind of heard murmurs about begins to ride in and people are getting really amped and jazzed and they're kind of giving him a warrior's entry. 
Um, they're giving him this triumphant entry that they're just almost to this fever pitch of acting like revolution, viva revolution right now. So the religious leaders, especially the Jewish religious leaders at this time, who have not liked Jesus from the start, because again, Jesus is not really about power structures. He's not really about uh, manipulating people or getting what he can out of people. He's really just about returning dignity to people. Which, in kind of the typical power structures, not something that's going to get you very far. No, no, no. This idea of just accumulation of power, accumulation of wealth, accumulation of me, 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 this, that, that the Jewish leaders of the time had been entrenched in. And I remind you, again, this is not anti-Semitic. What we're talking about here is because Jesus had Jewish followers as well, too. So this is all within the social structure and the social context of, of this group of people. So you, again, have the social structure and the social context beginning to be kind of eroded or upended. So those that are in power, what do they want to do? They want to squash it. They want to stop it. I'm comfortable with the power structures are. I do not want to change this. Now, in the same regard, Rome is very similar. So Rome has someone that we will end up hearing about later in the whole like uh, Eastern narrative, Pilate. Pilate is, is someone that is kind of governor over this area. He is in charge with, charged with keeping the peace. He is explicitly in charge with making sure that the Jews of this time do not have any more revolutions. It's kind of like, Pilate, you had one job. No revolutions. No revolutions. We don't want any uprisings. No revolutions, right? Rome is powerful. Caesar is Lord. Let's just keep it that way. Right? So, okay. So that's kind of our background from that. So, everyone's excited. Everyone is expecting this revolution to happen. So Jesus rides in. Not on a war horse, but on a donkey. People are just kind of like, all right, all right, we'll just take this. We'll, we'll roll with this. So, if you were expecting this revolutionary to come into your city and to take over, to kick ass and take names, where would you expect him to go first? Would you expect him to go to a place of power? Would you expect him to go to a place where, I don't know, like, uh, what is it, like a military-based military gear? You, you'd expect something to happen that would, that would begin to tilt or shift the, the force of power in that area. And of course, where does Jesus go? The temple, because that's, wait, what? What? Why does Jesus do this? Yes. So again, the people are cheering. Hey, 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 we have a revolutionary. Let's see what he's going to do for us. He's going to take things back. He's going to kick Rome's ass. Not so much, not so much. No, no, no. Scripture tells us that Jesus, after all of everything, is in an uproar. Jesus decides to go to the temple. The temple, a.k.a. the church of the time. What? Why would he do that? Is he going there to pray? Well, he is going there for revolution, but it's a little bit different than we typically expect. So as we recap on the road to the temple, let me recap with the words of Christopher Wright from his book, The Mission of God. Um, and he says this, he says, actions speak louder than words. As all the prophets knew when they engaged in prophetic signs, uh, sign acts. So Jesus decided that he needed to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was certainly not because he needed the rest. Having walked all the way from Galilee, 
he could have managed the last half a mile on foot for all who had eyes to see and who knew their scriptures. The action was a graphical acting out of the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9, which says great uh, rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion shout daughter of Jerusalem. See your King comes to you righteous and having salvation gentle and riding a donkey. So your conqueror is riding on a gentle animal. So the language of salvation expressed in the familiar text was picked up by the crowds and accompanied him. Hosanna, they shouted, which is an urgent cry, meaning save us now, like we said before. And they cried, uh, they cried it to the one who they hailed as coming in the name of the Lord. So who is this? Asked the residents of Jerusalem, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee, came the reply of the crowds, which was certainly true, but inadequate. For full expectation of the Old Testament text being acted out by this prophet on a donkey, was the Lord himself who had come into Zion to his temple, the temple on the very next day, which is what we're going to talk about now. So the folks that were on the ground at this time, for those that, that, that had been raised and understood scripture, which actually was a fair, a fair amount of them, were seeing something happen happened that they had heard about before. They had heard prophesized before. So they're getting very kind of amped up and jazzed about what's going on, okay? So this is Matthew 21, 12. So Jesus enters the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So we begin to really kind of see we're, we're in this, and, and I'll explain what all this means, that Jesus' motivation simply here is the fact that, that the church system of the time, the religious system, has become incredibly corrupt. Anyone, anyone, you, anyone can think of a context of that where that would fit today? Like where the religious systems have become corrupt and only about themselves. I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm at a loss from words. I don't, yeah, yeah, I'm being sarcastic. Sorry, you can't always see it on my face. Okay, so Jesus goes into the temple, which is the center of worship for the Jewish world, especially here in Jerusalem. And he begins to drive out people. He begins to drive out these people that, okay, so let me tell you this. Sorry, I'll break this down. So the temple was an area um, during this time where people would travel to uh, because they believed that that when you commit sin, when you do bad things, that you need to make yourself right with God. So they would go to the temple to offer sacrifices to God, right? So if I've done something bad, I want to be able to do something that is a sacrifice to me that costs something of me to be able to make my right life with God. Uh, yeah, and so when I move forward, hopefully I will have learned from that and I will continue to do good. Do you kind of see how that works? And then over the time, what it, what it become, this became more of a transactional nature. So on one level, people would, would travel. Like in the olden days, people would take one of their best like animals and slaughter it saying, wow, this, this is like, this is money in the bank. This is, this is something that costs something of me. But God, I'm really, I'm, I'm really sorry for what I've done. So again, sacrifice is something that hurts or something that, that, that takes something of monetary value for me um, in a way that's able to hopefully teach me a lesson that has, I can say, I want to go be a better human, right? So you're tracking with that. 
So over the time, what had happened was the temple system, which again, we have priests here. This is the place that you can make your sacrifices. The priests, they'll make your sacrifices for you. Now you can do it for a price. Uh, what had happened over and over again, it became more of a business where people would travel to the temple and instead of taking their own stuff with them, they would just pay for an animal to be sacrificed for them, right? So then it became that there was this idea of being upcharged for what you were paying for, for sacrificing. And if you traveled from a different area and needed a money conversion, they had these people called the money changers where you would need to pay money to convert your currency to then pay for a animal to sacrifice, which was also upcharged. So this idea of people being able to go and make themselves right with God had become a monetary institution. It was, it was a business. It was a business. And we here on the show, we never talk about Christianity becoming a business that's only about money. Have we ever done this? Shucks. No, never on this show. Yeah, we do this every week. So in the same way, over 2,000 years ago, the Jesus kind of gets a little pissed Jesus that is there for a revolution and change, he goes straight to the place that matters to him most, uh, which is the place that is supposed to be the most holy, a place where people are supposed to be able to go in a pure way, in a way that's supposed to be authentic and real and redemptively human, a place where people are supposed to be able to go and get right with God. This has become a place that is only obsessed with money and with power. So Jesus says, the scriptures declare that my temple will be called the house of prayer. And not even over spiritual license. This is, it's supposed to be a place where people are supposed to be able to go and get healing. People are supposed to be able to return to, to the essence of their humanity, the essence of their creator, and be able to say, you are loved, Go and do good things. And Jesus yells at them, but you have turned this into a den of thieves. Does that, does that preach today too? That a lot of this has become a den of thieves. And on top of this, so Jesus begins to like drive out. He begins to just drive out. So he is doing some kicking ass and taking names that the people would hope for, but it's not militarily. He's actually in this place of really trying to clean out the temple and saying, all this is hypocrisy. All this is wrong. All this needs to be cleaned out. Scripture continues saying, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So those that were thought to be broken in wastes and culture, those that were forgotten and beggars in culture came to the temple again and he heals them, and he makes them right with God. And the leading priests, the power brokers in this system, the leading priests and teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple singing, praise God for the son of David. David being the best of the kings of the Old Testament. So it was like the height of someone loving God and being able to have military power. And so people are shouting, praise God, the son of David, like the incarnate, like the son of David is here. But again, scriptures continue, but the leaders were indignant and they asked Jesus, 
do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus says, yes. Have you ever read the scriptures? Which again is a total, <laughs> it's a total snarky response uh, to ask these people that are supposed to be the experts in scripture of the time to say like, haven't you guys ever read the scriptures? Um, and he says, for, for they say you have taught the children and infants to give you praise. And then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. So the people, the people, the religious people of Israel at this time, they see this man coming in and what they assume is fulfilling prophecy to be able to come in and take Jerusalem back for Rome. They think this is going to be the time for political upheaval. But instead, it's a time for more of a spiritual upheaval. He goes to the temple. He kicks out the people that are really just practicing faith as a business. And then you return somewhere overnight. So our first movement was going into the city, which is, again, is what we celebrate in Palm Sunday. The next we move to clearing out the temple. Jesus clearing house for the hypocrisy of what people of faith should be. Because again, if you read any of the scriptures of what Jesus talked about, ad nauseum was this idea that people are called to be loving, to be compassionate, to be able to be giving to others, to be able to open up their homes to others, for people to give what you have so that others can have dignity in life. That Jesus, that Jesus is what's happening here. But this isn't the military Jesus that people want. Because at the end of the day, being able to create some sort of a revolution of loving others and giving sacrificially, it's not, that's not, that's not the playbook that most people want to follow. It's not the playbook that folks in the temple followed. It's not the playbook that I like, actually a lot of the... Uh, industrial church complex follows nowadays because it's a business it's money there's power to be gained there's presidents to elect there's all of that and we see that then as it is now we see a faith of christianity then that cared more about the power brokers of the time and kissing up to rome or squabbling for power amongst the jews just as we see nowadays where we see conservatives and evangelicals kissing ass the fat orange lumps that Jabba the Hutt their way into the Oval Office. People that look nothing like compassion, that look nothing like love, that look nothing like grace. But the religious leaders have learned who's ass to kiss in order to benefit themselves. So that leads me to the next portion of scripture, which, which I think we need to pay attention to the order of things as they roll through here. Next order of scripture is this, in Matthew 18. In the morning, Jesus was returning to Jerusalem. He was hungry. He noticed a fig tree beside the road, and he went over to see if there were any figs. But there were only leaves. And then he says, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the 
fig tree withers up. So his disciples, his followers, were amazed when they saw this and asked, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And then Jesus told them, I tell you, if you have faith and you don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, you may be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. You can pray for anything and you will have faith and you will receive it. Now, this is a weird bit of scripture that I've seen manipulated um, over the years. And it's also a bit of scripture that's not usually lumped in uh, with Palm Sunday, but it does happen as a part of the scripture if we're going chronologically in order. What we're having here is this, because I've seen people say, like, well, as long as you have faith, you can do anything. And I've seen people manipulated and beaten over this. I've seen people shamed over this. You're still sick because you just don't have enough faith. You got cancer because you don't have enough faith. You must have sinned. No, no. Uh, that is awful. And that is disgusting. And that is a weird, weird, weird twisting of scripture. And what I'm hearing here is as Jesus walks past this fig tree, he's hungry. Something that just seems to be, I'm hungry. I, it's, I should be able to eat figs off this tree. I want to do this, right? I'm hungry. Oh, snap. No figs. This tree is bearing no fruit. And what I believe here, and actually speaks very well to faith in our day, especially American Christianity, is that the tree looks good. It has leaves. It's beautiful. But it bears no fruit. So an apple tree that bears no apples, is it still an apple tree? A fig tree that bears no figs, is it still a fig tree? Or is it just a tree? Now I know that you can get, <laughs> you can push me back and say scientifically, well, it's still in the genus of figus maximus tree. I don't know, whatever that would be scientifically. No, but, but, but a tree that doesn't produce fruit is something that is really just not worth its weight there. And for a faith that does not produce fruit, a faith that does not love, a faith that, doesn't, that does not have compassion, a faith that is more concerned with politics than it is about love and grace and compassion and doing good and changing the world in a way, in a self-sacrificial way. It's BS. It, it, it might as well just wither and die. And, and I feel like moving in those stories from this, 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 this movement towards uh, against like the Roman Empire, against the Jewish power brokers, as Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday, as then he goes and clears house in the temple, and then as he goes and begins to, as he does many times, you will see what happens. Jesus will, will preach something, and then he kind of brings it home to his disciples. And what he's doing here with this fig tree is beginning to say, is you guys, if you're not bearing fruit, if you're not doing stuff, if you're not actually walking the walk and talking the talk, you guys are kind of useless. If, if, if you say you are my followers and you do not love those around me, who are you? And, and I'll leave you guys with this. And this is a quote that I, I really like, and I'll unpack it a bit. And it's by Greg Boyd from his book, A Myth of a Christian Nation. And he says this, the crucial distinction between the two kingdoms, and he's talking about the two kings, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Rome. Um, the distinction between the two kingdoms is how they provide antithetical answers to the questions of what power one should trust to change ourselves and others. Do you trust power over or power under? And what he's saying here is, do you trust a power like Rome that forces its way on you? Or do you trust a power like Jesus that says, 
do what you will, but I will show you grace and compassion whether you deserve it or not. Do we trust change through power of force or for power of love and compassion? Boyd continues saying, do you trust the power of the sword, the power of external force, or do you trust the influential, non-coercive power of Calvary-like love, of the Jesus-like love here? And I think that when we see here on days like this, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of kingdom, what does the kingdom of Jesus look like? Is it America? Is it Rome? Or is it something that is markably different? My answer here on Snarky Faith would say it's something different. That should be the message of Palm Sunday. Go do good, not because of what it can give you, but because it's simply just the right thing to do, simply because we want to make this world a better place, simply because we want to stop the hate and the bigotry and the misogyny, because we simply want to be able to stop uh, the raping of our planet. Go and do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because of what it can gain for you. And I think that we can see that that, that that, that that would be the message of something like Palm Sunday, that the power structures, that the power brokers of this time, there's always going to be those folks that are squabbling for power, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And there is an alternative, and it is the better way, and it is the way to change this world. So as we end this broadcast, just a reminder, you can catch us on podcasts at www.snarkyfaith.com. And you can also catch us on Facebook and Twitter. As always, I send you out here with the holiest amount of grace and peace and snark. So go out there and be a part of a non-coercive power. That's all I've got this week. I'm out of here. I will catch you guys again next week. Peace! WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Lumen, a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, question-askers, doubters, and skeptics, is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all of life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be a better day than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com.